0: Any information in this podcast is not intended to promote or recommend any particular product or services offered by Bell's family and associates. It does not take into account the objectives, financial situation, or needs of any investor. Before making an investment decision, investors should seek professional advice.
1: Good morning, Lucy. Great to be chatting with you again and really excited to have Dan Wang on with us from Shanghai. It's interesting, we're recording a podcast about the Chinese economy and some longer-term thoughts there on a day where we've got, obviously, a lot going on in the global financial system with UBS purchasing Credit Suisse, with lots of turmoil in U.S. regional banks. But as always, you kind of keep your eye on a lot of different games. And I think China, particularly for those of us in Asia and Australia, it's critical to understand. And I'm particularly excited to speak to Dan because she, in our prior conversation, has a view very different to mine and probably much better informed than mine. So I'm going to ask all the hard, though polite, questions to give us some context for China through the balance of 2023.
0: Thank you, Gavin. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this week's Tomorrow's News. In this season of our podcast, we are bringing regular expert guests to share with our communities their perspectives on the global market. And today we do have the pleasure of inviting Dr. Dan Wang on the show with us. Dan is the Chief Economist at Hang San Bank China based in Shanghai. She holds a PhD in Economics from the University of Washington with a focus on macroeconomics, environmental economics and econometrics. Her postdoc was with the Chinese Academy of Sciences in Agriculture and you may have seen her being regularly quoted in international media and she writes regular columns for media, including Financial Times China, Pengpai, which is the paper, and before Hang Sun Bank. Dan was previously an analyst at the Economist Intelligence Unit in Beijing. So I think a lot of interesting perspectives that she will be able to bring from both China and the US and the global markets. Looking forward to the discussion.
2: Thank
1: you so much, Lucy and Dan. Such a pleasure to have you on today. Let me first ask you, because you operate in the global economy, what are people saying, including economists like yourself, around issues in the U.S. and European financial system? Is it of concern? What's the context that you have or you're hearing?
2: Hello, Gavin. Thanks for having me. Over the weekend, we did see a lot of interesting discussion in Chinese state media and among the financial industry here. But overall, the bank failure in the US or in Europe doesn't really occupy the daily conversations of the Chinese. If you're not working in a financial industry, it's not a big deal. People thought it's kind of like a novelty. But for people like me who track uh, China's macroeconomic situation very closely, it does ring a bell about how everything has started to get into a panic mode very quickly after the 2008 financial crisis. So this time, the situation is not nearly that bad. But we did see the central bank in China, which we call the PBOC, Uh, lower the required reserve ratio very unexpectedly. That is partially the response to the financial surprise from abroad. So that is basically a signal saying that we are prepared to inject more liquidity in the system. We have the confidence to maintain stability here within China.
1: That's interesting. I think part of the problem (laughs) is that we probably all spend too much time on Twitter. So we think everybody cares But I can tell you from my own conversations, even here this morning with somebody who's one of the wealthiest people around, he was like, is this regional bank thing a big deal or something to be concerned about? I was like, wow, okay, I guess not everybody cares as much as I do. Anyway, let's just go back. You interestingly mentioned that cut in the reserve ratio. I was going to bring that up with you. And when we talked previously, you said the PBOC is going to be pretty doctrinaire around stimulus. What's the term I saw it used somewhere? And you would know this one. They won't engage in flood irrigation. I love that term. It probably translates better. It's probably a Chinese version that sounds more natural than that. But do you see this as slightly stimulative as providing more capital out into the economy? Or do you see this as a very tepid move? How should we read that cut?
2: The short answer is uh, no, this is not a stimulus. And the monetary stance in China remains as conservative as before, if uh, not more. Because during the most recent uh, MPC meeting, that is an annual political meeting that sets the economic agenda. This year is also different because it's the every 10-year turnover of the top leadership. One surprise that we had this year was that Yigang, the previous central bank governor, uh, retained his job, which surprised everyone in the market. Nobody expected him to stay for this long. For him to take this position, it simply shows the policy continuity concern. The central government, President Xi, he wants Mm -hmm. to prioritize financial stability to a great extent because obviously to prevent any further threat from the U.S. is a top concern on his agenda. So to ask the central bank to do whatever it takes to maintain that stability is quite crucial. Based on past two years experience, lowering the required reserve ratio did nothing to stimulate growth. It at most provide some liquidity to the banking system. On the daily operation, this doesn't change much on how easy the private sector can borrow from the bank. It certainly doesn't stimulate consumption either. So I would say the monetary policy is still very, very tight in China.
1: It's a great point. It's interesting because I was looking at the recent January-February data and perhaps before I go there, let me, let me ask you a, a sort of a high-level question about this data, because I've worked in Asia and in markets, and the general view was the Chinese data can't be relied on. It's all made up. It's whatever they want it to be per quarter. Basically, can't base anything in terms of future assessments on the data itself. But you made the comment to me, you said, well, a lot of people have that view, but I have a slightly different view based on my experience. Maybe let's go there first, (laughs) before we talk about the data, talk about how you get confident that you are getting a true read on the economy through government statistics. How do you do it?
2: I wouldn't go so far as uh, Chinese official data are fake. Debating whether it's accurate is a separate question. But to me, the most important question is whether it's useful in helping the market participants or anyone that wants to understand China to gain some insights. From the past 10 years, we actually see this effort from all levels of government trying to improve the data quality. Uh, Some of the officials even got arrested for faking certain type of data because we know they do have the incentive. If the data look good, then they get promoted. In recent years, I find it actually quite useful and more comprehensive than before uh, regarding the official data. They have made big progress in the scale and the categories of data they collect by industries. But for certain data about government finances or some of the sensitive data in consumption, they stopped publishing it with the general public. But still, you can purchase it from the MBS. When we look at China's headline figures like GDP growth or consumption or consumer price inflation, these data are quite indicative. And when we look at them, sometimes you can get a sense that the government is trying to smooth out The data trend, when the year is too good, or the economy is overheated, they tend to drag it down. Especially the GDP growth data, and that was the case in early two thousands. But when the year was particularly bad, they did have an incentive to push the data up, so that it looked quite smooth. When you plot the growth data for any countries, you don't get that smooth uh, line. But in China, it is that way. It is quite difficult to really fake the data, since when you do the integrated data analysis or high-frequency data, usually you do get a full picture and the stories are usually in line with each other.
1: I think what you're saying is that there's been an effort to improve the quality and transparency and you've got other high-frequency data sources that at least helps you corroborate the macro data. If we were to take that and we were to look at a couple of things that we've learned most recently from that data in January, February, it looks like things that seem to matter an awful lot are improving. So home prices look like they're better most places, which is great. And it looks like in general, growth left the end of 2022 on a pretty good trajectory. And that trajectory has continued in January and February as we see it. And is that Your perspective as well, that we're on the right trend to achieve that 5% target?
2: The 5% government target for GDP growth was lower than most people had anticipated. But it doesn't mean it's an easy target. When we look at the latest data in the first two months, it is quite worrying, actually, because last year, China has digged itself a very deep hole. Now it's trying to climb out of that hole, but I don't think it even got to the rim of that hole yet. It's not out yet. Comparing to what's going on in last November, December, of course, this year it's better, especially in January. It was the traditional Chinese New Year. People tend to be more generous when it comes to New Year. Of course, with the reopening, a lot of people went out and about uh, doing tourism stuff, doing visits again. And usually around the Chinese New Year time, the prices of all categories of goods will be more expensive than other months. So the data in January was good. But when we enter February, everything took a downturn. Housing transaction was better for major Chinese cities, including the first-tier cities like Beijing and Shanghai. And in the second-tier cities, very important regional economic hubs. Um, Hangzhou, Qingdao, and Chengdu are doing pretty well, but beyond that, we don't see the kind of rebound at all. Overall, the housing prices are still going down. It doesn't matter if it's new housing or second-hand housing. The new housing construction is still declining, and that is a pretty good indicator about future investment in the housing sector. So If we want to make the claim that the Chinese economy is on a normal trajectory to recovery, now the data are not sufficient evidence yet. Maybe we need to wait for a few more months before anything turn out to be real positive.
1: I guess it sort of brings me to this question. We often talk about this in the U.S., about the importance of housing and construction in the U.S. economy, because it is pretty critical. But looking at the Chinese economy, we've got a bunch of different things going on. And I guess the first place we stop off is to just sort of talk about this sort of consumption-driven economy that I think ideally would replace, to some extent, the export-driven economy that China has had for its last 20-plus years of growth. Are you seeing evidence that the consumer is doing its bit to lift their game and spend and so forth coming out of COVID? And I guess you got to adjust for Chinese New Year and so forth, as you've just talked about.
2: Before COVID, China was a consumer driven economy. Since about 2008, consumption was 60% of the GDP growth almost every single year. And for the remaining component of GDP, majority of it was from investment and the remaining share was from export. For about 15 years, export was only about 5 to 10% was the GDP growth. Mm. But after COVID started, the situation had turned around. Because China contained COVID in 2020, that was a successful story back then. Then its supply chain got back online when all the rest of the world was still struggling with a disruption due to COVID. So from 2020 on, in the following three years, export once again accounted for more than 50% of the growth. Uh, Consumption in the first year contributed negatively because no one was uh, spending money. They were trapped in their homes. Um, This year, the hope was that maybe people will feel comfortable again to get out and spend more. In some industries, this is certainly the case. A lot of people will notice that people are queuing up in front of restaurants in Beijing or Shanghai. But it's pretty much an illusion. When we look at the general data for Chinese cities, we're not even talking about counties and the vast majority of rural residents, just in Chinese cities. In most cities, the income is declining. Not a gross decline, but the income is declining. So for China's largest cities, uh, the income growth slowed significantly, but still increasing since people have pretty good job security and a lot of people still can't afford to eat outside. Their consumption is not dependent that much on the general economic situation. But we know that consumption is a function of income. When you see that people are worried about their future income or even whether they can keep their jobs, then, of course, they will become more conservative. And it's also reflected in the unprecedented high level of household savings in Chinese banks. Last year, it was 80% higher than the year before. And this year, in the first two months, the number is just as high as last year. It has shown some pretty worrying trend that Chinese consumers are just waiting. Uh, they're waiting for real signals, the warming up of the economy, and people are not splurging.
1: So it seems like we still hang a little bit on the edge in terms of consumer behavior. Do you worry, I see a lot of commentators talking about the high levels of consumer debt, particularly amongst younger consumers and various fintechs and sort of digital platforms that have allowed a lot of borrowing. Do you worry that that has a bit of an overhang? in that people need to get their balance sheets healthy before they can spend again, or is that oversold?
2: There is a big concern about the rising debts in Chinese families because for the older generations, people in China tend not to borrow. They did not behave like the American consumers, that people live paycheck by paycheck. Mm. But Chinese consumers, they tend to save way more. Even now, when we look at the saving behavior for migrant workers, they still save up to about one year's expense. So even if they don't have a job for a year, they could live off their savings. But for the younger generation, this is no longer true, especially with the development of fintech. People, right after they graduate from college, tend to borrow a lot more than the previous generations. And a lot of people don't have the kind of knowledge to manage their wealth or making the long-term plan for future spending. To a certain extent, this is justified because they always have the last resort of their parents or even the grandparents to support them. But when we look at the rapid increase in household debt level, this has become uh, more of a hidden bomb for China's growth in the future. When we look at other countries' household saving trend in the past few years, no one grew nearly as fast as China. Basically, the 10 years before COVID started, China's household debt as a percentage of GDP increased by 35 percentage points. And during the COVID years, the household debt to GDP stayed steady at 62%, but still it's quite high compared to what we saw 10 years ago. So now the effort is that the government will want to make sure that there's enough social safety net to help the families. But the fiscal situation is pretty tight for the low-income families to get the kind of help they need.
1: Those are some pretty stunning statistics. And certainly, it feels a lot more statistically like looking at the U.S. going into the GFC versus, say, the U.S., consumer, even coming into COVID and certainly coming out of it. People always try to draw the connection on the reopening trends, but I think certainly some different characteristics in in China. One of the things I'm very curious about, and I think this probably leads a little bit on some of the geopolitical concerns, is you talk in some of your work about quality investments, focus in the part of government spending, on maybe let, call it less wasteful infrastructure spending. How do you see that getting executed and what the implications are? Because it would seem to me that this has been a little bit of a challenge for Chinese government spending, and perhaps there's a new discipline in a positive way, and it's something we should pay attention to.
2: In this year's MPC meeting, one major task is to contain the local government debt crisis. And when we look at the absolute amount of the local government debt, it's in explicit term, it's a thirty five trillion RMB. But the shadow banking or the implicit debt on local government level is at least as much as that, depending on what estimates were you're looking at. In total, we're looking at a local government debt-to-GDP ratio between 75% to 100%. And that's quite astonishing, given that the government, all levels of government, have spent so much money in response to COVID. Then this year, they're not in a very good position to finance large projects. But still, they have the task of creating enough jobs especially for low-skilled workers. For, from the central government perspective, they would like the local government to build enough high-quality projects so that it can be used in a long term and improve the productivity. It's getting harder to do because in the past 20 years, China had built pretty much whatever needs to be built. And even on a county level, when we look at the roads, bridges, even data center, there was already overspending in a lot of places, especially in central and western China. This year, in the first two months, already we have seen some high level or the top profile defaults for the local government financing vehicle. Those are basically the local state-owned enterprises that can borrow on the government's behalf and then finance the local projects. Uh, They are in deep trouble. So I just don't see much room in that direction to stimulate China's economy.
1: Aren't local governments the primary vendors of capital, if you will, into that sort of infrastructure investment layer? So this is a bit of a complicated dance from a central government perspective, isn't it?
2: Oh, absolutely. The local government has a lot of social responsibilities on top of their economic agenda. They need to provide social security to build all kinds of infrastructure and to stabilize the local financial market. And for them, one of the major source of fiscal revenue before was land sale it usually accounts for about one third or even half of the local revenue. But since two years ago, when the central government decided to do this hardcore deleveraging campaign in the housing sector, then the land sales basically collapsed in the past few years. So now without this important source of revenue, uh, there's really not much they can do. A lot of the local governments rely on the central transfer, but that's not sustainable. Everybody knows about that. And then they start to resort to issue more debt. Part of the debt can be issued just under the quota of their debt limit. They could do that directly. But most of the debt had to be done through the LGFV. um, That are those local SOEs. So these are the really risky debt. Because they are borrowing through the commercial markets, usually doing business with the regional commercial banks. And when we're in an economic downturn like this, given that the international environment is also quite shaky when it comes to banking, then people start to worry about financial stance of those regional banks as well. So it's getting increasingly difficult for even the LGFVs to borrow from the banks.
1: So we've got a little bit of a conundrum. You want to put the capital out, but you've got a bit of a bottleneck in terms of how that gets cured, right? So what does the central government do in order to cure that problem?
2: One long-term solution they have proposed is the property tax. And in late 2021, to everybody's surprise, they actually wrote out a new pilot scheme to test this pilot tax in a number of Chinese cities. But as we knew, in 2022, China was in this uh, COVID response lockdown mode. So the plan didn't get rolled out. And also, people are quite aware that once this property tax is in place, it will be a big blow to the housing market. There's Mm -hmm. no way that housing prices will go up we'll be lucky if a lot of the smaller cities do not see their housing market collapse. So it is quite reasonable to assume in the long term that local governments will rely on property tax as their main source of revenue. But now, just how we can get from here to there is quite unclear.
1: Always the challenge in monetary and fiscal policy. We know where we want to go. Just will the economy let us get there and can ask Jerome Powell a little bit about how he's struggling with that problem this week. Dan, this is fantastic. It's great insight, such a balanced and intelligent view. So appreciated. I think as we evolve through the year, I think it's going to be great to spend more time with you, hear your perspectives, and dig into some of these issues as they clearly evolve. So thank you so much for your time today. It's thoroughly appreciated. And I'm going to look forward to having you on with us again.
0: Thank you, Gavin. It's great to be here. Thank you, Dan. This is been Tomorrow's News. We'll see you next week.